Hello, and welcome to the Dottacast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but not here. Oh my God, not here. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And here, here today, we gather here today to talk about the best goddamn episode of Game of Thrones that has ever aired on this show. Oh my goodness, Emmett, that episode, wow. Just, well, I, I, I feel... I have so many feelings going into this. I mean, I, 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 on one hand, I want to be like, well, why can all the episodes be like this? But then the other hand, I'm like, well, some of the episodes can't be as good as this one because then that makes all the really great ones really, really stand out above and anything and everything else that's in the, uh, the, the show canon, so to speak. I know we had an episode at the end of season six called The Winds of Winter, but looking at the kind of general glow around the fandom and the reaction to the, this episode, I feel like this is as close as we've gotten to what getting the winds of winter the book would feel like. Like this is the 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 aura, not just excitement, but catharsis and just uh, uh, gratitude towards the, the material we got to see. It's, it was a really special episode for sure. And it's one that really paid off a lot of character arcs in, in beautiful fashion and alluded to some deeper themes in a way that I thought worked really well in a way that I, I think the show sometimes either ignores those themes or tries for them and, and misses. But th- this one this one nailed it in a way that really came through in the writing. When we look back at this episode, I think we're going to evaluate this one as head and shoulders above some of the other episodes. Not that the other episodes are bad. As we talked about last week, episode one wasn't a bad episode per se, but this one is really superior. And I think one of the main reasons why it's so superior is because it allowed the characters to breathe organically within the narrative space that they had for the episode itself. So you had grace notes for characters that are going to be dying in the next episode, which is really, really nice. Uh, we will talk about those characters as we get towards the end of this podcast itself. But I also thought like just the chemistry and the dynamic between the different characters was exceptional here. And I really felt – and this is going to be maybe a weird thing to say, but I really felt that I was watching – Watching a chapter from A Song of Ice and Fire, if that makes sense. I talked last week on Twitter about how watching Game of Thrones season one episode, season eight, episode one, and then going back to Game of Thrones Catlin nine, which is the chapter we just came out with, felt like whiplash because I felt like they were just went really fast in the first episode. But then you come to Catlin nine, it just really marinates in the narrative. Here, I really felt that the narrative was really marinated in and it was really, really good. And the character dynamics were just phenomenal throughout this episode. And I first wanted to give major props to Brian Cogman, the writer for this episode, a massive fan of Song of Ice and Fire itself. I don't know if you know this, Emmett, but Brian's favorite point of view character is apparently Aaron Dampere. And he said this back in season two of, of all of all the uh, the characters. Even if I didn't love his work for many other reasons, which I do on Game of Thrones, I would love him for that alone because I, <laughs> I love Aaron as a POV character, of course, because he's our major eyes on Euron, who's one of my favorite characters. So, yeah, that that was one of the few signs that creative minds behind Game of Thrones were interested in A Feast of Crows and A Dance with Dragons, which the attitude from the show towards those books has mostly been polite dismissal. Right. And, and, and picking out a few bits of fan service here and there, which is fine because that's how a lot of people reacted to those books as well. I get it. But, yeah... I think Brian has both brought real skill for for character writing and interaction to the episodes he's worked on and also a real love for the source material in a way that manifests beyond fan service, but an understanding of those deeper themes and how to how to bring those themes to light, even in scenes that aren't from the books that he is creating himself from these characters. But as you say, that feels like you're watching a chapter from A Song of Ice and Fire. You can feel George R. R. Martin's voice informing the text in a way that doesn't necessarily happen with other writers on the show. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And that's not to disparage all the other writers because there's plenty of great writers for Game of Thrones itself. But Brian gets special kudos here. It's his final episode for doing Game of Thrones. And I believe he's moving on to the Wheel of Time show on Amazon. So he's on to bigger and better things. And I'm really happy for him that he's been able to have this opportunity to do Game of Thrones and be the writer for it. And he's been a writer since season one. And as a writer myself, of course, as you guys are, if you guys follow my Twitter, check my pinned tweet about my book and let me know if you're a literary agent or you know a guy or a gal who is one because I'm interested in talking with you or them. I wanted to highlight something that, that Brian said in a Entertainment Weekly interview that came out today, the 22nd, where he says, quote, a knight of the seven kingdoms is almost like a play. Mm, love it. Cogman adds an episode that he was eager to tackle yet proved to be a massive challenge. Cogman praised showrunners Benioff and Weiss for helping shape and edit the final script. This was the most difficult script of the 11 I've written for Game of Thrones, he says. The big challenge was not writing a Wikipedia page. In fact, my first draft was a Wikipedia page. The way it works is the showrunners return a final draft document with notes written in red in the margins. They return my first script with a sea of red. So props for Brian for writing the script, of course, and props for David Benioff and Dan Weiss for providing excellent edits to the script and not making it so Wikipedia-oriented. First drafts are hard as fuck, man. I mean, I could tell you that for myself, having finished the first draft of my own book two years ago and doing subsequent edits thereafter. And those edits and making a better product is harder still. So props to Brian Cogman. And apparently additional props. And I just wrote this this note here right before we came on air. Dan Weiss was the one who actually wrote most of the lyrics to Jenny's song beyond the ones that George himself wrote. That does highlight one of the advantages of working in this medium is that it's a much more collaborative method than writing a novel. Obviously, George R. R. Martin has editors and, and people he shows the books to and people he gets to remind him about detail that he's forgotten. But television is, is so much more kind of fluid and diffused in terms of the, the creative process among, among a group of people than writing a novel. So you get the advantage of a first script that brings everything to the table you, you need in terms of information, but then you have editing that can it can make it more more personable, more relatable, and more intimate. Because I love what Brian said about the challenge of not writing a Wikipedia page, because a lot of the lesser written episodes of Game of Thrones do feel that way. They do feel like info dumps. Right. And then the Lannister army went to Highgarden and was able to take it because it just feels like they're moving pieces around on a board and there's not much emotional resonance to what's happening and what the, the motivation isn't being tied into the character arcs. Now, how, how can we use dialogue and how can we use editing between scenes to suggest parallels in a way right. that it's going to make this resonate in a way just beyond the information being conveyed? Because yeah, if you if you break this chapter down to pure plot function as some joyless scolds on the internet insist on doing, <laughs> then it doesn't mean all that much. But this episode stands out so strongly as an example of how you can make an episode about something more than just plot mechanics and how you can imbue later plot mechanics with real meaning. I mean, one of the best things you can say about this episode is the next episode is going to be so much better because of it. Yes. The battle is going to be so much more impactful than it otherwise would have been if we didn't have all these scenes just soaking in why they're fighting and what they're fighting for. Yeah, that is a great, great point. And I think some of the best episodes of Game of Thrones are the places where they let the characters actually sit, talk, and interact with one another. I think another great episode is an episode like Blackwater, where it's set in King's Landing in a single setting. And here we have the same sort of thing going on where it's fully set in Winterfell itself. So we have the ability for these characters to actually think, to reflect on the consequences, reflect on their lives, reflect on the things that have made them characters in Game of Thrones and characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. Honestly, the Cersei storyline has kind of lost its charm for me when she doesn't have anyone interesting to play off of. She's just all wildfire with nowhere to go. Kyburn and Euron and Harry Strickland are just not interesting characters for her to play off of in the way that her brothers are. Or 
even someone like Littlefinger, who at least is going to argue with her. Right. Um, these mooks, not so much. So I agree the focus <laughs> on Winterfell was part of what made this special. And the sense of a real just thematic commonality among all these stories, the sense that all these characters are coming together and realizing that those stories have things in common, that they learned similar things along the way and lost similar things along the way. And that's why the, the Jenny song montage can work so well. I mean, montages with a, a slow, sad song playing a real hit or miss for me. Right. Like that's where either where everything comes together emotionally or it's where you completely lose me and I start laughing at you <laughs> because you have not earned the emotion you're going for. And part of how it works or doesn't work for me in a situation like that is if there's a real sense of commonality among the scenes you're cutting between or you're just cutting between them because it's a montage and you're just showing everyone. But with this one, I felt I felt real meaning. I felt like these these characters were coming to this realization, especially in the, the Jamie Brienne scene with all those witnesses, that they were coming to realization that they shared something more than just survival, as they all keep saying. That they shared life and, and love and something that the others can't take away from them. Yeah, one hundred percent agree with you. So let's talk. Let's get on to the episode itself. Our spoiler warning: as we talk about in all episodes, we'll be talking about the potentially all published books. That is, the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, and especially Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So for this week, like we did last week, we'll intersperse some questions throughout this episode, but we'll have a more focused question answer session from our patrons at the towards the end of this episode itself. If you want to ask us questions about this TV show that is known as Game of Thrones, you're welcome to be a subscriber to us at patreon.com forward slash notacastasof. Thank you to our patrons. And if you're interested in checking us out, again, it's patreon.com forward slash notacastasoiaf. So the title of this episode was revealed only after the end of the episode itself. And it is by far the best title of Game of Thrones ever probably ever. And the title is A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, and here is its synopsis. It's the trial of the century. Jamie Lannister stands in front of Lady Stoneheart within Hollow Hill, accused of crimes beyond... Ah, fuck. No, that's, sorry. That's my... That's I'm reading from my advanced copy of The Winds of Winter that I got at the end of the 12 Days of Westeros. <laughs> ah, I need to not mix up my notes. And why are my notes always wrong? <clears throat> sorry. Jamie stands trial in front of Queen Daenerys, who reminds Jamie that she and Viserys love to talk about all the horrible things they would do to Jamie for his quote unquote crimes he committed against House Targaryen. Jamie unhelpfully doesn't remind Daenerys Targaryen that her father was a tyrant who tried to murder half a million people. Well, maybe it's helpful for Jamie's cause here, but man, would I have enjoyed watching that meal served. Regardless, Sansa reminds everyone that actual crimes were committed against House Stark because hashtag justice for Jory is a thing. Jamie informs everyone that Cersei has hired the Golden Company to betray everyone. She lied, you see. Everyone is stunned. Cersei? Betraying everyone? Who could have foreseen such a thing? But then Lady Brienne steps in and defends Jamie, telling everyone that she trusts him and that he saved her life. And Sansa? Well, she trusts Brienne. And a very distracted John trusts Sansa. And then Bran helpfully doesn't dime Jamie out either. In the end, Daenerys reluctantly doesn't kill Jamie. Then we get to Daenerys telling Tyrion he's useless, which isn't exactly wrong. Arya asks Gendry if he has a weapon ready for her. Mm -hmm. Jamie and Tyrion have a conversation. They both talk about the good old days when Jamie could fuck his sister and Tyrion was friendless. Tyrion, having probably read some of his chapters from A Dance of Dragons, talks about how maybe he'll get killed, become a white, and then kill Cersei, ripping her apart. Lovely. But Jamie is gone when he says those words. Jamie, you see, sees Brienne. And I could literally hear our friends at the Close the Door podcast screaming as Jamie Brienne talked. And Jamie, well, Jamie asked to serve under Brienne's command. Did I dry sob? 
No. Yes. Yes, it did. Jorah talks with Daenerys, telling her to forgive Tyrion because everyone makes mistakes, like taking small folk prisoner and selling them as slaves. Right, slave bear? Right? Yeah. Sansa and Daenerys attempt to bond, but just before they can start braiding each other's hair, Sansa inconveniently asks Danny what her plans are for the North. Well, she's going to defeat the White Walkers and take the Iron Throne. Uh, what about the North, Danny? Danny gets that look in her face, you know the one, and I, a brave hero standing against the crowd, thought Sansa was the queen we need, because Danny has yet to put the horse in front of the cart. Queen of the North, Sansa, you are the Queen of the North in my heart. And I can't believe I'm saying that, but here we are. But wait, another reunion. It's brief, but not rushed. Theon Greyjoy has parachuted to Winterfell from his jetpack after last being seen aboard Yara's ship. Sansa and Theon reunite, and it's so goddamn beautiful. I did not cry. I didn't, Emmett. I did. I did. I did. Davos see with ladle soup for pseudo Shireen, which stop, HBO. It's too much, man. <laughs> that was my breaking point, too. That was when I felt I was being personally assaulted by a large corporation. Right? <laughs> right? Oh, man. Dullers, Ed, and Tormund arrive back in Winterfell and tell John that the Army of the Dead will arrive at Winterfell at break of dawn the next day. We then get a nice war council scene where our heroes put together a plausible, when I say that honestly, plausible battle plan to defeat the White Walkers. They can't hope to win conventionally, so they need to kill the Night King. Bran will act as bait for the Night King, and he'll be positioned in the Godswood. Theon and his Ironborn will defend Bran, and oh my god, why am I so emotional about Theon being there? You know, you can almost feel a Dance of Dragons kind of breathing through this, this, this episode. A sword. That's all I ask. Let me die as Theon, not as Reek. Everyone is told to get rest, and of course, no one goes to take a nap. John, Ed, and Sam talk atop the parapets of Winterfell, and Samuel asks how he. And Samuel talks about how he's Sam the Slayer. Ed says that the last one living among the three of them needs to burn the others. Then we're up to a great fireplace where Tyrion and Jamie talk about how hilarious it would be if Tywin could see where they were now, defending Winterfell. They drink. Brienne and Podrick show up. Then Tormund and Davos show up. Tormund creeps on Brienne, then tells everyone the story of how he killed a giant when he was a boy and how he got turned and how he got into bed with a giant's wife who proceeded to suckle him. And strangely, I am not annoyed by Tormund for once. Arya hangs out with Sander, who's chilling by himself like, an, like, like a noir anti-hero. Barak and Daring shows up too. These reunions are actually really good this episode. Arya goes to do archery practice. Gendry gives her the weapon and um, yes, the other weapon too. They bang. We flash to the fireplace and, oh shit, it's the scene. You know the one. We start with everyone talking about how, talking about their war exploits and failures. Tormund asks why Brienne isn't a knight. Brienne says it's tradition that women don't become knights. Tormund says that if he were king, he'd knight her. But then Jamie says that you don't have to be a king to make a knight. Jamie rises, draws a sword, and asks if Brienne wants to be a knight. She gives him a skeptical look, probably wondering if an insult is coming. But it never comes. Brienne walks over to Jamie and kneels in front of him. In the name of the warrior, I charge you to be brave. In the name of the father, I charge you to be just. In the name of the mother, I charge you to defend the innocent. Arise, Brienne of Tarth, a knight of the seven kingdoms. Wow. Whew, man. I'm a, okay, let's push those tears out of my, ear, out of my eyes right now. All right. <clears throat> Everyone cheers for Brianna's tears will up in Sir Brienne's eyes and even my old cynical bee fish eyes. And then we're back to the Winterfell Yard. Lyanna Stark tells Sir Jorah Mormont that she's going to fight. Jorah relents, but then Samuel gives hearts to Jorah Mormont, and it's a nice moment. Then we're back to the fireplace with everyone silently looking at the fire. They're out of wine. So Tyrion asks if anyone knows the song. Everyone demurs except for Podrick Payne, who begins singing beautifully. And I was fucking stunned to hear Jenny's song being sung. High in the halls of the kings who were gone, Jenny would dance with her ghosts, the ones she had lost, the ones she had found. 
the ones who loved her the most. Ones who'd been gone for so very long, she couldn't remember their names. They spun her around on the damp old stone, spun away all her sorrow and pain. And she never wanted to leave, never wanted to leave, never wanted to leave. And this song is done really, really well because it plays over a really beautiful montage of Samwell, Little Sam, and Gilly lying in bed, Theon and Sansa sharing a bowl of soup, Gendaria post-coitus, Grey Worm embracing Masande one last time before donning his helmet and marching out of the gates of Winterfell, Jorah Mormont leading his Dothraki cavalry while looking fretfully at the horizon, and the final notes end with Daenerys visiting a Jon who stands in front of Lyanna Stark's statue. Daenerys asks who the statue is. John says it's Lyanna. Danny goes on to kind of weirdly state that Rhaegar raped Lyanna, but no, John corrects her. Rhaegar and Lyanna loved each other. They married in secret. They had a son. It's me, John. But my real name is Aegon Targaryen. Bran and Sam had told him. And Daenerys, well, she's rightfully shocked, starts, rati- starts rationalizing that Bran and Sam are wrong, but John knows otherwise. Danny starts to talk about how this makes John the last living male Targaryen, and that gives him the better claim to the Iron Throne. And just before they could erupt into some sort of conflict, it's interrupted by the sounding of horns. Three blasts. The White Walkers have come. And that is Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 2, A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms. And when I was writing this, I'm not right now, but when I was writing this, I was kind of a mess because I just rewatched the episode. I cried through the whole damn episode last night, Sunday night, and then I rewatched and I was like, really, it hit me even harder this time around. I watched several scenes like five or six times, the Brienne Nighting scene, the montage of her Jenny song. This, I have to say, is the best episode of Game of Thrones to have ever aired. It's better than Blackwater. I have to say that it's better than Blackwater and I apologize for nothing. It does have that instant rewatchability, that kind of addictiveness and sense of cohesion that makes you want to just jump back in. And once you start to jump back in, you can't stop. I remember uh, Kim Renfro, who's going to be a guest on the Nauticast real soon, was saying on Twitter that she was trying to watch specific scenes to write about it, but then she would just end up rewatching the whole episode right. through again today. Because once there's, there's really no particularly weak scenes and they all work so well together. And like you say, it all comes together emotionally with Jenny's song. And that was just such a powerful moment for a lot of people in this fandom. At a level that goes deeper than fan service. Obviously, it's an allusion to a backstory character, Jenny of Old Stones, who's involved in this forbidden romance with Prince Duncan, son of son of Egg, and it's all very, you know, romantic and mysterious and, and dramatic, just like Rhaegar and Lyanna. There's definitely some, supposed to be some parallels there, but at a level deeper than just hey, book fans, we acknowledge that you exist. It's taking this element from the books and making it something emotionally central to the show, not just something mentioned in passing, not something worked into a scene that's about something else, but this, this, this real heart of the show and the heart of the show is this, this, this connection to the past and this sense that other characters have been where you've been. I mean, there's, of course, it informs the scene in large part because we're also thinking about Dunk right. and he, how he's likely Brienne's ancestor and how well this, this works in context of his story. And the, the, the Jenny of Oldstone song and all those characters are his generation. Those are his people. So we're, we're seeing these, these, such these strong connections between past and present. So, of course, that leads into the, the revelation that Danny gets about Lyanna Stark and Rhaegar Targaryen and Jon Snow and how all that works together because we're constantly getting the sense of the past and the present. And it's just it's so, so beautifully emotional. And the lyrics work so well, as you say, that they don't all come, all come from George, which is amazing because they fit the story so well. Just the sense of dancing with your ghosts. That has so many resonances in the series right from the beginning. What does Sir Waymar say to the others? Dance with me then. Oh my gosh, yeah. And they're, of course, you know, the walking restless undead to a certain extent. 
And it's something we've been talking about on, on the regular, not a cast is how the, the others and the whites work as these kind of metaphors for, for death and decay, bitterness, losing your loved ones and kind of going mad, the obsession you develop with that. And that really came through strongly in this show, as, as we were saying, that the White Walkers is this great metaphor for losing your humanity. And Sam directly alludes to that in the strategy session. And I, I just thought that was great. Yeah, it really, really was great. And I thought, and I think you make a great point too, in that it fits really well with the themes there. Because part of this, what makes that scene so memorable is that the scene right before it, and even the scene right before we have Brienne being knighted, is all of the people there talking about their past glories and their past defeats. You have Davos talking about the Blackwater and the Battle of the Bastards. You have Jamie dropping a whisp- Battle of the Whispering Wood reference there. I mean, I just was like, my, my heart was singing at, at this. I mean, literally and figuratively. I mean, I, I, I've listened to that song. I, me and my girls listened to that song many, many times today. It was, it was really, really lovely. Everyone's been listening to it, which is great. It's a sense of a real collective experience tied to this this emotional resonance, and it, it had a huge impact on people. And I think that's that's a that's a wonderful thing to witness. And I wasn't expecting to feel about season eight quite that way. I was expecting to be impressed in some ways, moved in others, and just awed and impressed. But this this kind of intimate connection to this specific episode was was not what I was expecting. So moving into into more specifics, what did you, what did you think were particular highlights beyond pretty much everything? Right. That's, that's, that's such a hard thing to choose specific highlights. So what I did for highlights for this episode is to talk about some of the things that haven't gotten a lot of attention and how they hit me when I rewatched the episode today. And the one thing that hit me really strongly was the Grey Worm-Masande relationship. And I will defend that relationship to the death and people who think that it's stupid and whatever are wrong and ugly and they need to find Jesus and get better. But their scenes were just utterly beautiful to watch. And that just means that Grey Worm is so very dead, right? They have that. They have that whole scene. <laughs> I think so, unfortunately. Right. They have that whole scene where where Missande talks about going back to Noth and hanging out there, and how there are peaceful people, and how how Grey Worm and the Unsully can defend them. And you're just like, God, thank you, David Benioff and Dan Weiss and Brian Cogman. You just have totally sealed Grey Worm's fate in the next episode itself. And that's heartbreaking because it's not just a great future for them, but it's a great future for the Unsully because one of the questions hanging over them always is. Well, how do you integrate these guys back into society? Right. They've been so thoroughly damaged physically and psychologically. What do they do when the wars are over? And this is a beautiful idea. We're going to go to those who cannot defend themselves and defend them. Right. That's just such a that's a what a, a sweet and revolutionary concept for Grey Worm. So that that does make his almost inevitable death in the next episode hurt all the more. This this kind of touches on something personal for me, but one of the reasons why I joined the military was not out of a sense of wanting to inflict harm or, or do some of the other things like defend America, but to defend the weak, defend the innocent always seemed like an ideal. And I know it's not an ideal that's often met in modern conflict or most conflict, for being completely honest, but it was something that I aspired to in my youth and still do at, at some level today. Uh, so having so having Grey Worm talk about defending the, the Nazi was just a beautiful, wonderful scene. And gosh, it's going to be so hard watching Watching Grey Worm die, especially that that scene where they embrace one final time and kiss as Jenny's song is playing, just man, it just crushed me. Like I watched it over and over again. It's so beautiful. Uh, the other the other part of that that really really I, I really enjoyed that's kind of undervalued I think in, by by folks who have enjoyed the episode a lot is the scene between Sansa and Theon sharing a bowl of soup again with Jenny's song playing because <laughs> it's great and that look that Theon gives Sansa just communicates so fucking much. Like, I'm sorry. I love you. I think it's a sister. I don't think it's actually a sexual thing. 
please forgive me. And he can't even make eye contact with her for more than a few seconds. And then you see Sansa responding with a small smile and that loving acceptance of Theon back as her brother just destroyed me, man. Like it really, really was powerful stuff. And these are small scenes. These are scenes that last all of about 10 seconds in terms of the Theon Sansa scene and about 23 seconds, not because I was counting or anything between the Masande Grey Worm scene itself. But they really help to anchor the episode emotionally. These small moments as well as the big moments, Brienne being knighted, Brienne being knighted, John and Daenerys, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. These scenes were great in their own way, but at the same time, these smaller scenes really help to kind of knit the emotions together for me, especially. Well, they're great because they inform each other, as I was saying, that the Grey Worm and Missandei scene versus the Theon and Sansa scene, they're both better because of each other, right. because they go together and you sense the emotions in common and you realize in spite of like the Northern kids not liking Grey Worm and Missandei because they're outsiders, despite of that, there are still similarities between the, the family of Winterfell and the outsiders in Winterfell. They are one people after all. And I think that's what that montage is trying to get across. And it did a great job of it. In terms of my highlights for the episode, it's, it's obvious, of course, the knighting of Brienne, but... You know, it really hit home because Jamie knighting Brienne is something that a lot of people have written about in terms of predictions or fan fiction and everything in between. It's not exactly a surprise that something like this would happen right. in the show or the books. It, it fits the themes and character arcs of those two really obviously. But whenever I thought about it, I always imagine it just the two of them. I always imagine it as like a parallel to the scene where she gets Oathkeeper. It's very intimate, just the two of them in a room and he knights her. And I'm sure that would have worked really well, but I was I was so touched by how it played out in front of witnesses. Yeah. And not just Pod, because of course it makes sense that Pod's there, but this whole crew of people from all walks of life. You got the smuggler and the squire and the wildling and the hand. Right. And they come from different parts of Westeros and really different backgrounds. And as they say, they've been on all sides of this war. But they all come together to honor this as a special moment for their own little reasons and applaud her. And that's that's really, as a, Alan Sepinwall, who's a great TV critic, pointed out, Brienne only had the half smile on her face after Jamie knighted her. When she really broke out into the full smile, is everyone cheering? Yeah. Because she didn't think that anyone except Jamie would be into that. And it turns out they all are. And like, the, and what a great vision of what Westeros could be. Not just Jamie and Brienne together, a great pair, but all of Westeros supporting them and cheering them on. It's this, a glimpse of the dawn in the midst of all this horror. I just thought it was, it was just so moving. Yeah. A dream of spring basically is what we saw there. Exactly. I mean, it's essentially all, what all bathed in golden light. Yeah. Was perfect. Golden light from the fireplace. I mean, that scene was just blocked really well too with the fireplace setting behind them, the darkness, the light there. I mean, it just works really, really well. So props for all like the lighting people who never get any props at all. So you get props here on the Nautica episode. I would also just say real quick, I like the Sansa Danny scene a lot. I know it wasn't one of the more wasn't one of the more popular scenes in the episode, but it surprised me because I really thought oh look, there's this debate going back and forth on the internet just in an all-consuming fashion about like <laughs> why should Sansa and Danny be fighting? That's just strong women fighting each other again, how cliche and people responding back, but they have reasons to fight each other. Yeah. It's not just them just being shoved together. Which which is totally fair, but I think what What's being articulated at the frustration of the Sansa versus Danny stuff is that it feels really predictable. Yeah. It feels, it feels a lot like the Sansa versus Arya stuff that really no one liked very much in season seven. And it, it's not so much that women shouldn't fight as in I could write the scene in my head as it's happening. Yeah. That's what, that's what I don't want to see with Sansa and Danny. And that scene surprised me that the interaction did not go as I expected. And it clearly didn't go as Sansa was expecting it to either, which I liked. Like when Danny said, you think I'm manipulating John? I, I, I'm in the I'm in the North where I never expected to be fighting a war. I never expected to against an enemy. I never expected to. So maybe he's manipulating me, <laughs> which I thought was great because it's of course not literally what happened, but it's Danny trying to communicate through subtext to Sansa. Hey, I'm just a person. I'm not like this all controlling dragon queen. I could I could be swayed by a man. I'm a, I'm a human like you, and I like that because 
Danny on the show doesn't usually do subtext. She kind of just says what she means all the time. <laughs> right. And so even when Amelia is selling it, it's just kind of blunt and not particularly interesting. So I like Danny working on a dialogue scenes where there's actually layers, which also happened in the crypt. So I, I, I really like that in this episode. Even when you take the emotions out, I thought that her use of soft power and trying to convince Sansa was exactly. really good. But then I really liked the fact that Sansa had a rejoinder to all of these nice things that Daenerys was saying, because she's like, we fought to take the North back. Like, what is the status of the North after we defeat the White Walkers, if we defeat the White Walkers? And Daenerys doesn't really have a response to that because she is similar to Stannis. Stannis is, I am king of all seven kingdoms or I am no king at all, sort of respect as the one that Daenerys is taking. What I really hope is the direction that they're going for with the Daenerys stuff is that she finally makes the Stannis, because we have to drop Stannis in this episode. It's a, this is the Stannis podcast. I really hope that Daenerys finally comes to the realization that she needs to be able to put the defense of the realm ahead of the kingdom. Now, I think she has done that in practice with bringing the Unsullied, the dragons, the Dothraki north and fighting the White Walkers there. But there still is that mentality that, you know, this is a fucking sideshow compared to taking the Iron Throne back. And I think what would make an excellent for an excellent arc in Daenerys and which will hopefully help to ease some of the tensions that are kind of there in some of the Daenerys Sansa fandom, so to speak, is having Daenerys complete that arc and having her have a full arc where she finally does come to the realization that the Iron Throne doesn't matter when dead men come hunting in the night. It's telling that the, the two conversations Danny has where she treads into these waters with Sansa and Jon both get interrupted right. before we learn what Danny's going to say, which is, is certainly worrying, but also leaves her open to multiple options, especially after seeing what Cersei might do. I, I wonder if Cersei's single-minded drive for the throne at the expensive humanity against the White Walkers will act as something of a cautionary tale for Danny. Maybe if, if some kind of backstabbing from Cersei ensues as it seems like it's going to, maybe that'll teach Danny about, hey, maybe you don't want to be like her, but it could easily go the other direction. So we'll see. So we've covered our highlights. Sir, what were the relative lowlights? You're going to have to nitpick on this one since we love this episode. Find something wrong with it. It's really hard to find something wrong with this episode. It's like trying to find something wrong with Blackwater. I would I, I just had a really hard time with it, so I had to go with the nitpick. And it's really, really minor. But John's bewildered, wait, I have a better claim to the Iron Throne look that he gives to Daenerys when he's down in the crypts was my only kind of bad twitch for the episode. Because, dude, Samwell just told you this information in the previous episode. And that brings us to a question from Sir Kevin S., a poor fellow patron who asks, what did you guys think of the way they handled the Imataric scene with John and Daenerys? What did you think, Emmett? I overall liked it because it was just very direct and blunt and that it wasn't overdone, didn't go on too long, which I thought was appropriate. There were a, a couple of weird moments that are just kind of inherent to this dynamic, like that John has to pretend that he just realized that he has a claim to the Iron Throne again because he has to do, he has to do, he has to react somehow when Danny says that other than just nod, I guess. Yeah. Or like the, the little bit of weirdness that you alluded to that has never really made sense where Danny knows that Rhaegar ran off with Lyanna but still hasn't really incorporated that into her image of Rhaegar, which is still mostly positive. Yeah. And it's unclear what Viserys knew exactly and who told him. So that, that's always been something of a weirdness in the Targaryen backstory, but they move through it quickly. The emotion of the scene, I think, worked very well. Amelia Clark, I thought, really sold it. Like when there was that slow zoom in as John was telling her the truth. And you can see a lot of emotions that play at her face. There's this vulnerability and fear and the sudden realization he was talking about himself. And I thought she, I thought she conveyed that really well. Yeah. But I, I agree, John. Unfortunately, the show sometimes still relies on this tool of John is heroic, and that means he's dumb. 
Like being being heroic means sometimes you don't realize obvious conclusions. They kind of did that in season seven too, and I think that's a, a little unfortunate. But it it didn't wasn't a huge impact here, as you say. It's a minor complaint. It is super minor because I did feel that the scene was really really well. I thought it started out really well, and that you have this slow revelation that is coming out where Daenerys asks John, "Who statues that?" and you know, you would expect John to say, that's my mom or that's my mother. Instead, he says, Lyanna Stark in that kind of John way. I thought that was really, really powerful. And then it's just- I love that because you can see him wondering, what do I say? Do I say my mom? No, I have to explain this to her right. first or that's going to make no sense to her. So, all he can say is Lyanna Stark and it just, just hangs and, and she gradually realizes, oh, wait, I know that name. Yeah. Viserys told me that name. There's a whole story there. Yeah, I like that. That back and forth was really good for sure. And usually I don't like the aspect that the, some, the show sometimes uses of cutting away right at key moments. But like the Sansa Daenerys scene was interrupted. I thought that the interruption by the White Walkers showing up was really, really good. And I thought that it was amazing too where they're up at the parapets and Daenerys just gives that look to John. Like John's like, okay, now we're going to get going. And Daenerys just looks at him like – you motherfucker. Like, <laughs> it was really, really, really good, I thought. So it was, it, was un- it was completely unspoken. And I thought that the facial acting that Emily Clark did, like you said, was just phenomenal in this episode throughout. So what about you, man? What did you think was a low light for this episode, if you had to pick one? I didn't like the Tormund scene at first when it seemed like it was just going to be another he makes Brian uncomfortable and everyone deals with that for some reason scene. <laughs> but then well, it quickly went over the top with his giant story. And that's what you got to do with Tormund. Yeah. You got you to turn it up to 11 and make clear it's a joke. Because otherwise it just kind of gets creepy and unfunny. So I think they course corrected there. It was one of the better torment scenes. And as you say, I guess it would have been nice to check in with Team Cersei, ostensibly just to have uh, good old Lena Haiti choose some more scenery. But I like to focus on the Winterfell crew ahead of the battle, and it will preserve the surprise of what will inevitably be her attack. Yes. As we'll get in, get into in a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I think, like I said, the Tormund usually annoys me. I always feel that people have been like, oh, it's hilarious how Tormund is always like creeping on Brienne. That meme of Tormund like reigning up next to Brienne of Tarth in season six, I want to say. Right. Oh, God. Yeah, that that's one. true. Well, well, now let's just replace that with him clapping for her becoming a knight. That's that's much more positive. Yes. Much much more wholesome relationship. I like it. And you also have, you know, Tormund saying that he, if he was king, he would knight Brienne ten times over, which I thought was a really, really nice touch, too. That That is adorable. Although I imagine him just her, him just making her kneel for like half an hour <laughs> as, as he accomplishes that task. I said ten. I'm a man of my word. It's going to be ten or <laughs> ten knights. Anyway, let's talk about Yes. So we had a great question that is going to anchor this portion of the podcast from Sir Ajit S., a poor fellow, and I apologize if I mispronounced your name, sir. But he asks, hi, guys, would love to know what you made of Bran revealing the Night King's endgame vis-a-vis to kill the Three-Eyed Raven to erase all of the world's memories. And I have to say that I love the shit out of that. But Emmett, I know that you are the man who has spoken and written at significant length about why the others work so well as ultimate villains, but not because they have a reason for being the ultimate villains, but because they're kind of something else. Uh, this made me so happy. This honestly might be my favorite thing about the episode, even more than Brand getting knighted. I know that's heresy, <laughs> but it, ju- it just fits so well with a particular dead horse I've been beating forever, which is that no, it's not going to turn out that the others have a good reason for wanting to kill everything. Right. And we're not going to get everything perfectly explained and all the lore planned out in detail because we don't want midi-chlorians to happen again, guys. Right. This is why we don't do this. 
This is why you realize that some things are just metaphors and need to work within the function of the character arcs, not as just this completely explained dry list of lore. There has to be meaning instead. And I, I love it when Sam started talking about, no, this is more than just death. This is us not having been. This yeah. is our memories, our meaning gone, our lives taken away and having it been revealed for nothing. Because, of course, the real horror of the White Walkers coming to town has been emphasized over and over is that they turn your dead against you, that they take your loved ones and your kids and turn them into zombies. And that's why, as people have been pointing out, they've been, you know, suspiciously emphasizing in this episode, the crypts are perfectly safe. Nothing could possibly go go wrong in the crypts when a necromancy army comes to town. Yeah. Part of the point of that is that they emphasize these ghosts that Jenny is dancing with, these these restless spirits who haunt our characters. As you say, their battle memories and all their various scars, literal and metaphorical. We saw the literal ones on Arya, but of course the metaphorical ones are discussed throughout the entire episode. Or Gendry talking about how he learned about his who his father was at the same time he was being like sexually traumatized right. and assaulted, and just how everything is just wrapped up in horror with that for him. Like that's what the others are about. They're like the, the metaphor for all of that. They encapsulate all of that. And so, of course, them coming to kill everyone brings this meaning out of them. They have to find who they really are because this is their last chance because a literal army of death is coming to town. And that's not meaningful anymore if it's not actually an army of death. Right. All that meaning is taken away if the others turned out to be secret, friendly good guys or are just misunderstood. And I think the people who think that would make the story more deep kind of got a refutation with this episode, which says, no, actually, there's an emotional truth we're going for here, which only works if the others are this metaphor. And it's a metaphor not just for death, but for the loss of meaning. So the way to fight them is to have meaning, to have life that they can't take away from you. The others could kill both Arya and Gendry tomorrow, but they'll never take this night away from them. And I think that's that was the point and purpose of this episode in a lot of ways. And I thought that was so powerful and confirmed that I'm right. So I love that, too. (laughs) <laughs> I I am ecstatic that you're right, at, that we are right, because, of course, we did talk about this, and I think on our first episode of the Nauticast about the, the Game of Thrones prologue. But yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think people have taken George R. R. Martin's statement back in, I want to say, like 2007, 2008, where he says he's talking about Dark Lords and how he doesn't want to do Dark Lords and how that became sort of a thing post-Tolkien and how that really didn't work well for him. And then someone's like, well, what about the others? Aren't they Dark Lords? And George said something to the effect of, well, my, well, you'll just have to keep reading sort of thing. People are like, oh, that means that the others are have some sort of purpose or plan or, or there's some sort of reason for the way that they're acting. But I don't think that's the case because George is writing against, not writing against, but writing in relation to Tolkien, in relation to Sauron. And Sauron from Lord of the Rings, and granted, I've only read the books once and I've watched the TV, watched the movies many, many times now. But Sauron is very much a being who does want to wipe out human life, but he wants to enslave them. But he also has avarice and greed and these types of aspects about himself that seem kind of humanish, so to speak, like kind of Tywin Lannister, so to speak, if you want to go with that. They're there, but he embodies them in the way that the Greek gods embody certain human traits. He's more right. like a representation of them than he is a person possessing those qualities. You know what I mean? Like Sauron's not greedy. He's greed with a capital G. He's the greed right. in everyone's hearts. That's why the One Ring affects everyone, not just Sauron. And I think I think he's after something similar with the others. That you know the the way the others turn their servants into zombies is just an exaggeration of how lords treat peasants, of how the Night's Watch treats its members, and it's supposed to supposed to be an exaggeration so we can reflect how horrible these things are. That's uh, you see that even with Viserion that he's taking Danny's child and turning it against her. The, the others corrupt everything that you have and turn it into this mindless war machine. So when you look at something from the books like Septon Maribald's, Bro- Septon Maribald's Broken Man speech. 
You can see a metaphor for the others and the whites in that. When he talks about some other lord shouts that you're his now, is that not an equivalent to the others just rounding you up as zombies and making you part of their army? I mean, it's yeah. obviously it's a high fantasy spin on the concept, but that's the connection there. So I think when Martin says, yeah, I don't want any more Dark Lords, what he's talking about is I don't want these evils that have nothing to do with my characters. I don't want these evils that are just walled off from humanity and the heroes get to keep those evils outside them. He wants to struggle within the human heart. That's why you get a character like Stannis who could not have possibly have more Dark Lord tropes associated with him. (laughs) He's like, he's a grumbling mean uncle from a volcano gargoyle island. But Martin reveals he's got a real strong human heart that's divided against itself. And that doesn't get rid of the evil things he does, but it puts them in context. And I think, I think that's more he was talking about than it turns out to be Ferngully and the others were just trying to save the leaves because that's just lame. We have talked about this significantly in Link before, but that great line from the Spurn Suitor from A Dance of Dragons is that men's lives have meaning, not their death. And here for the White Walkers, death is the meaning for them. And death is a meaningless meaningless thing. Well, I mean, depending on your ideology and religious preference and all those sorts of things, don't want to kind of get into that that debate or discussion death from the others is a meaningless thing because they're just going to turn you into a servant and turn you against your loved ones death in the service of of something else whether it's it's faith or your loved ones or or knighthood that can that can have something of real meaning because of your life because of the values you're putting into it right exactly you know waymar roy stood against the others in the game of thrones prologue and that was meaningful that he died there and he died yelling for robert holding his sword and attempting to take on an unstoppable inhuman force. And I think, again, it's really, really good that the others or the White Walkers in the case of the show are looking to erase the world's memories and looking to erase life as it stands. I think that is a fantastic touch on the show's part. And I think that's where George is going as well. And it's great. I I love it. I love its death. They're trying to erase story. It's very meta in the sense the others are trying to wipe out Game of Thrones and replace yeah. it with the White Walkers win. And our heroes are saying, no, we can't do that because of all this this experience we've had. And I, yeah, I love that. But all emotions and themes and all those other literary qualities aside, let's get down <laughs> to the hard brass tacks. How's the fight going to go, Jeff? So our Hand of the King of our small council wolf band, Zach, asks, would love to hear Jeff's thoughts and analysis of the military strategy versus the others. So I started kind of... T- talk about this on Twitter. And then I realized, hey, we're going to do this in podcast form later tonight. So I should probably stop doing that so you guys can get to listen to this on this episode. So I'm looking at the map right now. Looks kind of bad. So we have looks like the Aarons and the Starks on the left flank. We've got the Dothraki, I want to say, out in front is Outriders. We got the Unsullied in the middle, mass infantry formation. We have the Starks on the right flank itself. We know that Brienne is commanding the left flank. We know that Grey Worm is going to be in the center. We can assume that Jorah Mormon and that whoever that call is they keep showing, who I don't even know what his name is, is going to be out front with the Outriders. And then on the right, John will be there. What I think the tactics of John and the others are is that the Dothraki are going to be out front of the White Walker army and the army of the dead. So the Dothraki would push forward, make first contact with the army of the dead. Then they would wheel behind, pretending that they were in a panic or a flight, which would cause the Whites and the White Walkers to attempt to pursue them, which would then feed them into the Unsullied lines there. So the Unsullied would hold them. And we did see in this episode that they have seemingly a moat and a collapsible bridge there. The Dothraki would fall back behind the bridges themselves. 
the the army of the dead would march forward or, ru- or rush forward into those pits, into the spikes. They would light this, the the moat on fire because there's some sort of wildfire or something like that going on there. They'd attempt to take out the White Walkers and the Whites that way. Meanwhile, the Night King would probably fly over in his dragon if their strategy is what's actually going to happen and attempt to intercept Bran there at the Godswood of Winterfell. And that's where Theon comes in. And I guess – the one thing I didn't quite get in the episode is what the plan was exactly when the Night King shows up and Theon is there with his Ironborn. Are they going to try to kill him? Is John going to be there to try to kill him? Will Daenerys show up with Drogon and John with Rhaegal to intercept the Night King at the at, at the Godswood? That's a little bit unclear. And I think that's unclear specifically because they want to preserve some sort of surprise going on there. Most likely, if the White Army comes in towards the center following the Dothraki, they would collapse and try and flank around the Whites. So they have to be constrained and into moving towards those pits, those spikes. They would be able to defeat them in mass. And in looking at the map itself, and some people, for whatever fucking reason, I don't understand this, but some people are like, whoa, these are not like, what is this map actually showing? Like, well, how many Whites are there? How many? I'm like, God, you guys, like, this is a TV show. We're not talking like an actual, like, battle map and terrain model that you would set up in an actual fight. And I've done those things in real life. And, you know, it's fine. It's fine. Enjoy the show for what it is. So ultimately, you want to try and constrain the the white army in towards the center, utilizing the limited battle space for them and the limited maneuver space. Constrict them with your flanking force as well. Push them all towards the center in order to mitigate their superior numbers and then hopefully destroy them in mass slowly but surely, utilizing dragon fire, utilizing those excellent catapults and trebuchets that have been shown prominently in the background being loaded, being fired, being tra- and having soldiers trained on there. Will that actually happen, though? Well, as you say, outlining your battle strategy in such detail is just a guarantee it's going to fail in some regard. What's the line about uh, no plan survives first contact with the enemy? I definitely think, definitely think we're going to see that here, especially given... You know, people have talked about the psychological impact of an army of Dothraki screamers in both book and show, but that doesn't compare to an army of zombies in the long right. night. So just discipline is going to be, I think, a major problem in this battle for everyone, probably except the Unsullied, who are, <laughs> who are known for their discipline. Tying in those two questions of, of strategy and then disaster, we have another question from our Sworn Sword patron, Sir Frank B., who asks, we're all a bit vulnerable after that episode, so I'd like to exploit that for a second. Well done, Frank. What hypothetical events next week has the potential to be the most emotionally Devastating. Sandor dying to defend Arya or Sansa. Theon in a callback to some of the most haunting dialogue in A Dance with Dragons, telling Bran he should have died with Rob, but is glad to die here for Rob's family instead. Mm. Davos dying to defend that kid. Brienne saving Jaime at cost of her own life. Well, really just a tie all across the board there, Frank. Yeah. I think everyone's a winner slash loser in that one. But yeah, as, as we say, once the battle starts to go wrong, as it inevitably will, that's when I think we're going to start seeing the casualties start coming in en masse. I think that, as we said, the setup is, is very strong in this episode for the major casualty being Theon, dying, yes. defending Bran in the gods, but especially if John and Danny don't get there in time, or the Night King is about to kill Bran and Theon has to, has to intervene. I think that was set up so strongly, not with him just wanting to fight for Winterfell, but also make up for having stolen it from Bran in the first place. I think yeah. that was that was probably setting up a Theon death. Yeah, I agree with that. But the big question I have, and I've seen a lot of people talk about this on Twitter and elsewhere, but I even picked this up too. And I'm not one who usually picks up things on first watch. But first watch, I was like, is Bran going to die? And the reason why it's kind of struck me that Bran is Bran's life is threatened, which is something I never thought I would see in A Song of Ice and Fire or Game of Thrones 
is you have that little teeny tiny scene after the battle council where you have Tyrion going and sitting next to Bran and being like, Bran, tell me everything that you know. So you have that knowledge transference that's going on between Bran and Tyrion. And I'm not saying that Tyrion is going to be the next Three-Eyed Raven or anything like that, but those memories that they are attempting to preserve and preserving human life have the ability to be communicated to Tyrion and having Tyrion carry on that information and that that history on to the rest of humanity. Is that setting up Bran to die in this in the next episode? Our friend LML has done a couple of great videos recently about how the the image of Ned Umber as the kid sacrificed and the, the symbol indicating the Night King tree we saw at the end of the first episode of the season, maybe foreshadowing Bran dying because he's a kid associated with the Weirwoods and with that tree in particular. I think it would be interesting if the information Bran passed on to Tyrion was how to kill the Night King. Yeah. Then that would certainly, or how to do it in such a way that would really get rid of his entire army or free the army of the dead. That would certainly be a useful nugget of information to, to pass on before he die, before he dies. I, I hope not. I hope like Theon pulls off a, a successful sacrifice, which seems like a weird thing to say, but in terms of saving <laughs> Bran's life. But I think it's definitely a possibility. There are a lot of deaths I'm kind of on the fence about on this episode. Some seem pretty certain. I think yes. Jorah is pretty likely to go. Dollar said, I'm amazed he's no. lasted this long. <laughs> no, not, uh, not Ed. I know, I love Ed, but especially when they talk about, but, you know, the last one left kind of burned the others. That seems, you know, he's he's the ultimate Night's Watchman. And I think, he, you know, him going down and fighting the others makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Grey Worm, as you say, seems pretty heavily uh, foreshadowed. I hope Brienne doesn't die. A lot of people are saying she might now that her character arc is, is somewhat complete and she's she's got the thing. But I, I, I hope she gets to live on. That would really that would hurt. I hope she survives so that she can bang with Jamie. I mean, honestly, that's I mean her arc is not complete. I mean, it it, it is complete. They emotionally fucked. They fucked with their eyes. That scene was just a metaphor for sex, Jeff. But we we actually need the sword. All Jamie Brienne scenes are metaphors for sex, Jeff. That's how it works. That's what I've been told by the internet, and the internet is never wrong about this sort of thing. That is not wrong. And then there's the possibility of Davos dying, which I'm just not going to discuss, because why would that be allowed? That's just simply illegal. So, blowing right past that. Of course, when we start thinking about battles in Game of Thrones, you know, we, of course, we, you set up the strategy and tactics beforehand, but then, then there's the twist, the twist of, of, of something going wrong. And while, of course, the White Walkers just bulldozing defenses and killing a bunch of people is certain to happen to at least some degree in, in this episode, I think Winterfell itself is certainly gonna, gonna kick the bucket, unfortunately, as a whole. But the other twist involves the, the characters who are not in this episode at all. And that brings us to the question of what Team Cersei might get up to. What do you think, sir? Right. So what, was interesting about this episode is we did not get Cersei or the Golden Company at all. And we did have Theon making that huge journey all the way from the Narrow Sea, apparently up to Winterfell. So a certain amount of time has passed. It's unclear how much time has passed, but is that enough time for, say, the Golden Company to make the march north through the neck and get into the north and to stab Team Stargarian in the back? I think that's very possible, if not likely. I think it makes a lot of sense. In the trailer itself, we don't actually see the battle at, at all. We see essentially the first five minutes of the next episode, those scenes from there, and we don't see much of the battle at all. And seemingly as well in the trailer for Game of Thrones, we don't see the Golden Company in the north at all, which to me feels very strongly hinting towards the fact that the Golden Company is going to be in the north. Similar to that, we didn't see the Vale Army in the north in trailers for season six before they came charging at the Battle of Bastards to save Jon Snow. And the Northmen there. So I think that the twist is going to be that the Golden Company comes up north 
Team Sargarian is just about to win against the White Walkers and the Whites. The, the tactics are working beautifully and wonderfully. And of course, there's that other military maxim, which is if your attack is going really, really well, it's probably an ambush. So narratively speaking, the ambush in this case would be the Golden Company showing up with their 20,000 swords and stabbing the Starks and Targaryens in the back. Yeah, it works really well thematically, as we were saying earlier, that Cersei is so obsessed with, with the throne and her family and her slights that she would ruin a chance to save the world just to prove her point. <laughs> it fits her character and it would be a way to end the battle in dramatic fashion if, as you say, they're, they're, they're perfectly close to winning. And the other potential twist that would be interesting and the other character who didn't show up in this episode at all is Melisandre. Yes. Even, even though she did come up in the dialogue between Arya and Gendry when she was talking about what the Red Woman did to him. So that, that stuck out to me as possibly the writers and showrunners going, hey, remember Melisandre? She's still around. Let's get her back in people's heads so it won't seem completely out of nowhere when she shows up next episode. So I was, I was thinking I could definitely see her pulling a Benjen where she shows up long enough to save John's life. Like John is, you know retreating in disarray after the Golden Company screw everything up and you know, others are about to get him and Melisandre does a big old fire sacrifice. I can see that happening and also them wanting to keep that as a complete surprise and thus leaving it out of leaving her out of this episode and leaving it out of the previews. Yeah, I can definitely see Melisandre showing up as well. And that also takes us to a question that Lady Alarisand, one of our poor fellows, asks, where she asks, Hey guys, do you think the Children of the Forest will swoop in and save the day? Where is Sweet Robin? Can fire kill the Night King? Well, I I don't know where Sweet Robin is and I don't care, honestly. And can fire kill the Night King? Maybe, maybe not. It's hard to say. I think we only know that Valyrian Steel can kill White Walkers so far is the only thing that's been revealed. But the first part of the question is really interesting. Do you think the Children of the Forest will swoop in and save the day? And that's fascinating to me because we have Old Nan's story about the last hero from Game of Thrones Brand 4, in which the last hero is hunted, by the is hunted in the night by the White Walkers, but the story is cut off. But later, Bran remembers the end of the story. All Bran could think of was old Dan's story of the others and the last hero hounded through the white woods by dead men, spiders big as hounds, big as hounds. He was afraid for a moment until he remembered how the story ended. The children will save him, he blurted. The children of the forest. And could we see something similar where the children of the forest save Bran or John from the White Walkers next episode? I'd have to rewatch season six, but I'm pretty sure the children are dead. And unlike the books, they haven't mentioned the Isle of Faces or the Green Men and that whole branch of what might potentially be the Children of the Forest. So the help is unlikely to come from that angle. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that that side of things is, is probably dead on the show. The, the last hero story in general is interesting because it's not an archetype that's really been explored on the show. And it has always stood out to me in the books as indicative that someone's going to take a, a journey into the heart of winter deeper than where Bran got with Blood Raven's cave. Martin said we're going to be exploring lands farther to the north in the final books. Of course, that might just take the form of Bran's visions. But I think it's possible that John or someone else will take that kind of last hero journey into other territory to deal with them in some way. And I don't think we're seeing really anything like that in the show, which is fine because I think the heart of winter visually would be difficult to, to make work on the show. I think that's something you got to leave up to the reader's imagination to a certain extent. It might fit better on the written word. So I think we might see a, a Children of the Forest saving the day moment, as we saw with Bran in the books, with, with John if he goes on a version of the last hero journey. But I think the children are done in the show. Yeah, sadly, I agree with you. But there's a possibility that we could see someone else save John, like Melisandre, as you, as you put out before. And I think that about takes us to our question section of this episode as we're getting near the end here. Our first question comes from Lady King of Tea, a sworn sword who asks, since Danny found it convenient that Bran, John's brother, and Sam, John's best friend, were the ones who told him about his parentage, do you think we will need another character to substantiate the claim? Someone like Howland Reed, for instance. I think for me, the final nail in the coffin there was when we learned Nero was not going to be coming back for season eight. I was like, nah, that's it for the Reeds then. 
And I'm fine with that. I think they've covered it well enough on the show with both Bran providing the, the, the magical astral evidence and Sam providing the hard, realistic evidence. Yeah. And yeah, Danny wasn't willing to accept it, because that's because she just heard about it in the moment. It's kind of reeling from the shock. I think John's saying, I know it, Danny. I know it deep down. I think that was supposed to erase any real doubts on her part and just leave her with kind of anger and fear at the, at the truth of it. So, Howland in the books, I think, is is likely to come to, to the fore in the event surrounding Rob's will, because it's that was in all likelihood sent into the neck right before the Red Wedding with Mage Mormont and Galbert Glover. So, I think Howland might come into the narrative proper as someone who you know, informs John about the multiple crowns potentially waiting for him and confronts him with that choice, tells him about his father. You know, is, is that kind of that useful backstory character and Martin's been keeping him in his back pocket for, for that purpose. I think bringing him into the show just to extra convinced Danny about this thing. I think she already at some level knows is true. I, I doubt they're going to go there. Yeah. The only reason and way I could see Howland Reed showing up is to fulfill a similar role of saving John, but we already have Melisandre who's seemingly being set up for that role as well. And it just feels like overkill at this point to have him acting as additional confirmation that John is actually Aegon Targaryen sixth or seventh of his name, whatever it's going to be books and books versus show. For sure. And our, our final question for the episode comes from Sir Way, of course, a brand new Sworn Sword patron. Thank you so much, sir, for supporting us. Who asks, hey, fellas, what an episode, huh? Upon rewatching, I couldn't help but notice, not sure if this is intentional, but Brienne standing and vouching for Jamie reminds me of Sir Duncan the Tall needing someone to speak for him in the Hedge Knight. Again, not sure if this was a conscious decision, but the irony of Dunk's descendant, whom I guess we could have been considered a Hedge Knight in some fashion, having to vouch for a former Lord Commander of the Kingsguard is very satisfying. On even more than just a romantic level, Brienne and Jamie have pushed each other into being the person they truly want to be. And well said, sir, especially with that last line. That well, I, I think there is a genuine romantic connection between Jamie and Brienne in both books and show. I think it, it also speaks to this larger philosophical connection between them. And that it's not just that they're similar, but that they can encourage each other to, to be the, the vision in their head, be the knight they want to be, and help each other get there in a way that wouldn't be as meaningful if they just tried to get there themselves. And I, I don't know if it's an intentional parallel, but hey, they bring up Jenny's song in this episode. Yeah. So clear, clearly they're paying attention to that era of the backstory and how it can inform the present day characters. Brian Cogman, as we said, is really into the lore and knows the story well. So I definitely think he was thinking about Dunk. I don't know if it was all the way down to the parallel of Brienne speaking up for Jamie, the way people had to speak for Dunk. But Dunk is very much a presence in this episode. I agree with that. And I think it's intentional on Brian's part. I mean, the episode is called A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, which of course sure. was the title for the, when George published the three, the first three Duncan Egg novellas as one big book in 2016, I want to say. And I, I think it's intentional that we have Brienne standing and vouching for Jamie at the start of this episode about similar to how Duncan needs all those people to stand and speak for him in the Hedge Knight, which is, Again, I think I still think it's my favorite Duncan Egg story, The Hedge Knight. I think I, I love what George does in kind of that smaller setting in Duncan Egg. And I know we did talk about this at one point about how there probably won't be any more Duncan Eggs down the road, sorry to say, but we have this. This is our final Duncan Egg story, guys. Is, is Brienne Brienne of Tarth being knighted by Jamie Lannister. Yes. For me, I think for me, I think spiritually and, and Podrick standing in for Egg, this is the this is the end of Duncan Egg. This is the end of Duncan Egg, and it's a fitting end, and I think it's beautiful and wonderful, and I couldn't be happier with the end of Duncan Egg and the end of all happiness, because next week is going to be utter fucking tragedy. 
Damn straight. And so I think that just about wraps us up for Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 2, A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Definitely one of the top five, if not top one, episodes of the show. (laughs) So thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you so much, especially if you're one of our patrons. We appreciate your support. And even if you're not, we thank you for your ears. Absolutely. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean. You can find us at Patreon if you want to submit questions or get early access to episodes or get bonus episodes like our upcoming episode about the night lamp theory, how Stannis will wreck the phrase in the winds of winter. And that'll be out for all $5 above patrons on Saturday. And it'll be available a few days earlier for our small council and Kingsguard patrons. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Peefish on Twitter, Brenda Peefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. So join us next week for episode three, where our hearts will be shattered and we'll be weeping into our microphones the entire goddamn episode. I can only imagine. Just imagine Grey Room dying is just already making my heart break. But we also have our regular chapter by chapter episode coming out too, and this one is going to be on a Game of Thrones John 8. A secret target on the wall? Wow, amazing. Who could have imagined that? And we're happy to announce we'll have a special guest. Indeed, we're going to have Kim Renfro on from The the Insider. If you're at all familiar with Game of Thrones, you've probably read Kim's writing. She's done exhaustive, brilliant work on the show for years now. She has a book coming out called The Unofficial Guide to Game of Thrones, which covers all sorts of interesting details about the show and just really provides the the full breadth of the fan experience. That's available for pre-order on Amazon. We've been looking forward to having her around for this chapter specifically with all the great themes surrounding John and Eamon and Elsie and Mormont. So I'm super excited about that one. I am super excited too. So thanks everyone for watching Game of Thrones. Thanks everyone for listening to us. And we will see you guys next week.